0: Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Electric Cities Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Warson. In 2005, the Province of Ontario passed the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act, otherwise known as the AODA, with the primary goal of making the province fully accessible by 2025. With that end date only six years away, disability advocates are raising concern that the province has done relatively little to meet that deadline, and that there's little indication things are going to significantly improve. One notable Ontarian who supported the AODA when it was first legislated is the Honourable David Onley, who served as Ontario's 28th Lieutenant Governor from 2007 to 2014. He's also a wheelchair user and very much attuned to the challenges persons with disabilities encounter in today's society. This past January, he tabled a report to the provincial legislature with sharp criticism of the province's commitment to meet the goals of the AODA. This is a really important topic for any Ontarian to understand, including all of us in the city building profession. So it is with great honor to be joined by the Honorable David Onley, former Lieutenant Governor, a former broadcaster and TV news anchor, and now a senior lecturer in the Department of Political Sciences at the University of Toronto. So Honorable David Onley, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Jeremy.
0: And actually, this is my very first time to ever meet a lieutenant governor or a former uh, lieutenant governor. So what is the proper way to address a former lieutenant governor?
1: Um, Well, let's start with if you were interviewing the present lieutenant governor, the correct title is Your Honor, in the same sense that if you were interviewing a mayor, it would be Your Worship. Um, As far as uh, former is concerned... uh, I retain the honorific title in print. Uh, so I'm allowed to use the H O N dot before my name. But, um, as far as any ongoing conversation, it's just Mr. Onley or David or whatever you feel comfortable with.
0: Okay. Good to know. So what was it like to be a Lieutenant governor for the province of Ontario?
1: It was an enormous, uh, opportunity. It was a, a great honor. And, uh, a great challenge too. Um, uh, I've said this many times that nobody ever wakes up one morning, uh, looks over at their wife or and says, say, you know, I, I think I should be lieutenant governor someday. It's just not one of those positions that you aspire to and then set out to achieve. It's, it's not like a, a university degree or a, a coveted job or position somewhere, w- w- you know it uh it's just a it's such an honorific position not honorary because there are powers that uh, come with it but it, it, it's a unique position uh there's only at any given time in Canada there's only 10 lieutenant governors and one governor general and um so it's a small club and uh it was just a, an enormous honor um I was surprised to find out that you, at least during my time when I was appointed, uh, is that you actually applied for the position. That doesn't happen anymore. Uh, it's now reverted back to uh, where it was before Stephen Harbour became Prime Minister and that is uh, entirely up to the Prime Minister of the day uh, who makes a decision as to who he or she wants to have in that position. Now, given that there are 10 provincial lieutenant governors, one governor general, and given that the terms typically run for five years, uh, that means about every five or six months, uh, somewhere in Canada, a new vice regal is being appointed or the process is underway to appoint a new person. Uh, It's hard for me to believe that uh, this September it will be five years since I left office and uh, Barring the unforeseen, uh, the Prime Minister will be looking to appoint someone else to be um, the 30th Lieutenant Governor of Ontario, replacing Elizabeth Dowdswell, who has served with great distinction since September of 2014. And um, so uh, a long roundabout way to uh, answer your question, but uh, there it is. It's quite
0: an honor. Uh, what What surprised you about the role? or? Was it a steep learning curve to get into it? was it? both. Mm-hmm.
1: It was a steep learning curve, but one that I, I truly embraced. Uh, I was fairly certain I was going to get it. I, um, not 100% sure why, but I was fairly certain in my own mind that I was going to get the position. And so I, I was determined to become as knowledgeable about it as I possibly could uh, prior to the announcement, which was on July 4th of 2007. And, uh, at least that's when I got the phone call from the prime minister. Um, and that's what happens. You get a phone call from the prime minister. Yeah, it is. Um, in fact, when I was contacted by his office saying that he wanted to talk to me, uh, I knew that I had it because, uh, the prime minister does not call people to tell them they didn't get a position. He has staff to handle that task. And, um, so, uh, so there we are.
0: Uh, what does the role involve essentially?
1: Well, you are the Queen's representative in the province of Ontario. And, um, the role of the Lieutenant Governor is multiple in, in addition to representing the Queen. The prime responsibility, and it sounds, uh, sounds so elemental to say it, but the prime responsibility is to ensure that there is a premier and a government in place at all times. Uh, that's the prime responsibility beyond representing the Queen. But that's one of the Queen's rep- responsibilities in Great Britain, is to ensure that there's a, a prime minister and uh, a parliament in place that's functional. Um, the viceregal position and the regal position in, in Great Britain um, is very much a guardian of the democratic process. Um, it hasn't happened in decades in Canada, but um, you know, should there ever be uh, a piece of legislation that was deemed to be uh, so controversial that it was unconstitutional or I- even illegal, um, the the vice regal officer, the L.G. or the governor general, could literally withhold consent and at that point it wouldn't have mattered that it passed in the legislature it would not be law it's not law until the vice regal officer gives royal assent and um, so i gave royal assent to every bill that was passed in the legislature between 2007 and 2014 or up till middle of september you would always
0: review i guess you would always uh, it would be yourself that would determine whether it was constitutional, whether it would pass that kind of test?
1: Well, you, you would know from both staff and, and government lawyers, that um, uh, members of the attorney general's office, that, that it was legal. It would be more controversial than uh, it would be the, the prime reason that it would be drawing attention. So there, there was never any piece of legislation that was even remotely close to being illegal. Uh, There certainly were a lot of controversial pieces of legislation, but it's not the vice regal's job to determine whether or not that should pass or not. You have a responsibility to sign it into law um, unless it has gone completely out of bounds.
0: I see. So uh, had there ever been, I guess, in, in Canada's history... Uh, a situation where an LG or governor general would not uh, sign. yes you know
1: it it has happened and I mean we're we're also coming uh, and and not just pieces of legislation but um, uh, you know we're coming up on the 100th anniversary of the uh, King Bing uh, crisis where um, Prime Minister King wanted the governor general Julian Bing to call, he wanted to call an election and uh, um, Bing would not allow for it and uh, called upon the leader of the opposition, Arthur Mahon, to form a government and that only lasted a matter of days before it it fell and then there was an election which King won rather handily. But it was a great constitutional crisis. They're still arguing about it today and um, I teach it in my class and it still reverberates and as we get closer to 2027 you can be certain that um, you'll hear more and more about the 100th anniversary of the king bing crisis okay
0: well maybe you'll i'll, I'll um, get a chance out of work to audit your class on yeah. this um, that'd be wonderful yeah because i, I want to get into the topic at hand which is um the aoda report which mm-hmm. i mentioned in my introduction um What exactly is it, and what was it intended to achieve?
1: Well, when the Act was passed in 2005, and I should say unanimously by the legislature, a a rare circumstance uh, for a partisan piece of legislation, um, uh, when it was passed, there were also provisions that every three or four years there would be a formal review of the Act insofar as it's progress was concerned, because what distinguished and still does distinguish the AODA from most other pieces of accessibility legislation, including the predecessor act here in Ontario called the ODA, the Ontarians with Disabilities Act, um, is that there was a timetable and a schedule for the implementation of different standards in the province of Ontario uh, to increase the degree of accessibility so that the target date of 2025 could be achieved to make Ontario fully accessible. So how are you going to be able to determine that unless you keep track every four years as to how we're doing? How how close are we? uh, What more needs to be done? What's working and what is not working? So um, there have been two previous reports. The first one was done by the former MPP, Charles Beer, and the second done by the former principal of the University of Toronto Law School, uh, Mayo Moran, and um, both of them were critical of the government for not making enough progress, just not doing enough and not going fast enough. So when the opportunity came along for the third legislative review, and it's a report that goes to the legislature as opposed to, the well, the minister responsible takes charge of it, but It is a report to the provincial legislature. Uh, I was thrilled to be appointed to do that because I'd been keeping track of it very closely for years. During my term as lieutenant governor, um, I made accessibility the overarching theme of my term of office because I was the first person with a physical disability to hold that position. And typically over the decades, different lieutenant governors have had um, their own areas of interest that they promoted while being in office. So for Lincoln Alexander as the first person of color to hold the office of Lieutenant Governor, he promoted racial harmony. Uh, Hal Jackman promoted education and is still heavily involved and uh is a passion of his is promoting uh higher education. Hillary Weston on volunteerism and um uh my immediate predecessor predecessor, James K. Bartleman, who was the first indigenous person to be Lieutenant Governor in Ontario. uh, He promoted literacy amongst indigenous youth. And so when it came time for me to be considered as Lieutenant Governor, one of the things, one of the points I made to the prime minister was that I, I didn't just want to have the position for the sake of having the position, but I wanted to have the position to promote accessibility. So,
0: and so you mentioned the term disability. Um, I, I think there's, you would probably agree that there's some ambiguity out there regarding its definition. Yes. So how do you like to define it?
1: It depends on the context of what we're talking about because, um, no two disabilities by and large are the same. And if, you know, disabilities affect people in different ways and, uh, Uh, You know, two people can have arthritis, but uh, one person could be severely affected by it, and another person uh, of apparently same stature and same background, etc., might only be marginally affected by it. So uh, disability is any condition that is limiting on the person uh, in order to achieve normal day-to-day functioning and living. And uh, so that can be uh, muscular, uh, skeletal, it can be, um, you know, vision, hearing, it can be intellectual, Um, it can be developmental, it's just the widest range. And that's why um, when you, when all are included, uh, some 16% of the population or over 2 million in the province of Ontario are affected by disability. So that's a very significant percentage. But um, the, very, the most significant thing is, when you take into account the immediate family members of the person with a disability, when they are included in the equation, over 53% of the population wow. are affected by disability. So my wife and I have three sons, two daughters-in-law, and uh, five grandchildren. So if we're all going out somewhere, and at uh, various times we do, if a place is not accessible, it's not just me or my wife and I that, uh, but but everybody else. So that's uh, so that's one of the staggering statistics related to accessibility and disability. But it's it's uh, completely verifiable. Mm.
0: So I, I first came across. Um, the, what's called, I guess, the third review of the AODA report. I, the, I read about it in the Globe and Mail about eight weeks ago, um, and it summarized your report as, and I quote from the Globe, a withering indictment in nearly all aspects of the act. And I don't think that statement was an exaggeration, because in the introduction of your report, you present some very sharp language criticizing the AODA. For instance, you stated that the AODA has, by and large, turned out to be a mirage, and you go on to say that for most disabled persons, Ontario is not a place of opportunity, but one of countless dispiriting, soul-crushing barriers. That's pretty strong language. Yep. Um, Why did you feel you needed to set that kind of tone at the beginning of your report?
1: Well, number one, because it's accurate. And number two, because I don't think people generally appreciate that the circumstances are that bad, and there's a reason why. Uh, and it's a bit ironic, really, and that is the uh, prevalence of the wheelchair symbols uh, in parking spots, especially. Uh, Ten, and they're everywhere, and that's good because it means people like myself, who, although I use an electric scooter to get around. I also am able to drive a minivan. I put the scooter in the back and, um, but even so having wheelchair parking is hugely important. Uh, for me, it's hugely important for people who have, who are disabled in terms of bad backs or uh, COPD or any one of a range of disabilities. Um, and so wherever you go on this campus down, we are at Scarborough t- campus, Scarborough yeah. campus, Um, U of T St. George or uh, the Eaton Center or any one of uh, countless places in Toronto, you will see the wheelchair symbol. Uh, And it gives the impression that the facility, uh, uh, these signs are outside whatever the building is, that that means that the building itself is accessible, but it's not necessarily at all. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And so it's in one sense, it's very deceptive, very deceiving. And um, unfortunately, for the person with a disability, you don't find out until you've tried to get in the door. Mm-hmm. And uh, you will find that, you know, it will call up in advance and they'll a- ask them point blank, is your place accessible? And they'll say, yes, it, it's fully accessible. There's just one step at the front.
0: Well, that's the step.
1: And that's the step, and that means it's not accessible. And I've often told the story that Rick Hansen has repeated many, many times of uh, being at a conference in, or meeting, I should say, in Ottawa with some Olympic athletes, very physically fit individuals. And after their meeting was, came to an end, they decided to go out for a bite to eat and went down the road to a restaurant and they could see the wheelchair symbol at the front for an automatic door. And so they pushed the button and in they went and were immediately confronted by a flight of six stairs. And he wanted to just turn around and go somewhere else. But his uh, friends, associates with him said, you know what, it's getting late, we're all hungry, so just put the brakes on your wheelchair. And they physically lifted him up and took him up the stairs in his wheelchair. So he gets to the top of the stairs, and the manager finds out that Rick Hansen is here. And so he comes over and he wants to meet him, shake hands with him, get a picture taken with him, and they start talking. And he says to, the, uh, says to Rick Hansen, um, you know, it's really great to have you here. I've always admired what you've done, and uh, you're a great Canadian and all the rest. And Rick said, well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate it. But, you know, unless I had been here with six able-bodied Olympic athletes who are, who are capable, I couldn't have gotten up here. And this is what the man said. He said, well, you know, We've been meaning to do something about it, but we don't get too many people in wheelchairs who come to this restaurant. And you just go, really? That's mm-hmm. your answer? That's the answer. Yeah. Just so, what
0: is, so I guess that's sort of, that kind of captures the um, the essence of your response to mm-hmm. the, the current state of affairs with buildings. Yeah. Uh, So why do you think that is? Why do you think that we haven't seen uh, a better form of of accessibility in in both private spaces and I imagine in public spaces as well?
1: I think because uh, far too many designers uh, and architects uh, do not consult with end users uh, before the designs are carved in stone, if I can use that analogy, before they're set. I, I encountered this at various times uh, traveling, where, you know, we will stay in a, a wheelchair accessible room, but that doesn't mean that the room is actually accessible. It means whatever that hotel thinks is accessibility is what you get. And uh, in our last visit to Ottawa, uh, we had to change hotels after one night because their so-called wheelchair accessible room was not at all accessible. And as we traveled the province for the hearings for the third legislative review, we heard this story again and again from people. So th- the number one barrier to people traveling with disabilities traveling in the province of Ontario or anywhere else for that matter are the barriers that they, barriers they know they will encounter when they try to stay in so-called accessible rooms. Mm-hmm.
0: So what are some of the improvements um, that can be made to these, uh, well, existing buildings. Uh, you were saying earlier that architects and designers should put a little bit more thought into their building designs, but once a building is up, um, are there, is, is there a lot that can be done to make these improvements?
1: It depends on how bad the mistakes were in the beginning. Um, if you take a look at Ryerson's uh, Student Learning Center, I, I don't know that there's anything that could be done with that, uh, short of calling in the, uh, I say this uh, mockingly, but short of calling in the U.S. Air Force (laughs) and asking to remove it. um, I, I don't know where you would begin.
0: So that's the building near Young and Dundas. Yes where uh, it used to be the SAM, the record man, and then it was replaced by the Student Learning Center, which looks like a pretty cool building. Oh, it, is, it does look um, cool. Yeah. With this, the interesting stairs. So that's the issue, right? It's the stairs, it's oh, the there's columns. multiple issues. multiple issues. So what are a couple of examples next time any one of our listeners are walking by the building that you could, you could point to?
1: Well, um, the stairs are at an angle to begin with. So for those people with some degree of walking ability, but say you use crutches or canes, um, coming up at a at an angle, going upstairs, holding onto a railing uh, is a very, very difficult proposition. Um, if you're on a scooter or a wheelchair, they have uh, switchbacks. So you go up at a certain angle, then you have to make a 180 degree turn and come back. And then go up a little bit further and make another 180 degree turn coming back the other way. But there's, it, there's it's not obviously laid out so that if the person had any kind of visual issues, uh, you could easily uh, lose your way. Uh, and uh, if you had limited vision, you could step right off. Uh, so those are a couple. There's a, an absolutely brilliant analysis done by the, uh, AODA Alliance on YouTube, um, there's two versions of it, a 12-minute version and a 31-minute version. Uh, I show it to my students in my Politics of Disability uh, Senior Seminar course, um, and it, it's shocking as, a, um, as the narrator and the, the host of the interview, David Lepofsky, goes through it line by line. and um, the 12-minute version leaves you upset. The 31-minute version leaves you just shaking your head, going, how was this done? How was this done in the first place?
0: So what are the, I mean, that's a fairly recently completed mm-hmm. building, maybe within the last five years. What were the standards? Was it just the AODA? Is it building code? And what did they have to follow in order to get their building permit? Or were there, I guess, the accessibility standards, are they Um, are they implemented in the building code to, uh, well, tragically,
1: there's nothing that says you have to, um, consult with or discuss with persons with disabilities what should or should not be going into a new design. And what's clear to me is that whatever, I mean, I'm sure these people did not intentionally set out to become, uh practically a world's worst example of a new building. Um, But, uh, and unbelievably, it has won architectural awards for design, uh, which just underscores the problem, um, because it's a hostile place. It really is. Uh, And it's, you mentioned Sam the record man, and ironically, Sam the record man was fully accessible. I mean, you came in straight off Young Street, it was old, it was crowded. Um, by some standards, it would not be considered accessible, narrow um, pathways between the, the record racks. But uh, you could get in the door. Whereas with the uh, Student Learning Center, and this is not just the only one and we're picking on it because it's the most egregious example. But, um, uh, you know, it's its entrance for wheelchair users is off to the side and out of the way and not well marked and so why is that why did that happen and it it, it goes to the fact that unfortunately in this province and in most jurisdictions uh, architects students who go into architecture are not required to uh, take courses on accessibility Uh, it just doesn't exist so that's particularly difficult um, because you can't know what the needs are unless you are a person with a disability or have a family member with a disability. Um, And so, you know, just referring back to the hotel situation for a minute, uh, I can say almost with total confidence that the problem with the hotels is that most of the designs been made by people who are not disabled you know so you'll find grab bars in, in washrooms for instance, but the grab bars are in the completely wrong place
0: so uh, I guess with the AODA was, was that an attempt to try to get the uh, architecture schools and other types of design schools? Uh, making a mandatory course for those uh, seeking the profession?
1: It was not in the original act. I think I think that it should be. In the meantime, um, it's up to government, in this case the provincial government of Ontario, to, with the various requests for a proposal, say here are the specific standards that must be met for the winning bid. Um, here at U of T Scarborough, uh, this continues to be one of the most accessible uh, university facilities in North America. Uh, one of the reasons, one of the key reasons, is not just the original design, um, which was even by the standards of the mid-60s, or even by today's standards, was uh, ahead of its time, but certainly for the standards of the mid-60s when this was being designed, it was light years ahead of thinking. But it just shows you that if you get the right people, uh, great things can happen. Great things can happen. Right. And so, with each new building that was has been built here on campus, they've gone back and looked at the previous building, and looked at the RFPs, and looked at what was being said about accessibility, and then ex- then assessed: okay, how did these work out? Did this work, or was this or was there still a problem? Hmm.
0: You mentioned uh, in your report that the AODA um, is somewhat of a toothless act. Yeah. Um, And I guess that's because there's weak enforcement. There's really no way to ensure that those standards are implemented. So how do you think that can can improve?
1: The government can decide to enforce the standards, as I believe they should. They should look at it, as I said in the report, from the economic side of things the economic argument and that is we have hundreds of thousands of people on government assistance who are persons with disabilities and uh, on one side that's good because you know long ago uh, decades and decades ago if not centuries well certainly into the 18th into the 19th century excuse me um, we'd decided as a society where we're not going to just allow people to die on the streets of starvation or exposure because they're disabled um, and that assistance would be provided and that's that's good I, I'm, it's, I'm glad we live in a country like that but having said that um, if those people are taxpayers they're taxpayers because they're employed if they're employed They're contributing to the society, both in terms of whatever job they're doing and then also as a taxpayer. And uh, so we need to look at it. The government needs to look at it from that perspective because unemployment for people with disabilities on average is higher than it was in the Great Depression. Wow. Yeah. Mm. So in the Great Depression, the highest the unemployment rate ever got was 24%. Um, for people with disabilities, notwithstanding the act, notwithstanding curb cuts, notwithstanding all of the improvements that have been made by, uh, because of the diligence of advocates through the decades, the unemployment rate continues to be above 25%. So for people with disabilities, it's not a great depression. It's a perpetual depression. It just doesn't end. Mm. And, um, so that's one of the reasons that government really needs to focus on the unemployment side of the equation. Mm.
0: Uh, I want to talk just a little bit about building retrofits. I mean, it's mm-hmm. one thing to to start off on the right foot yeah. and the right idea to design a building. Like here at U of T with campus where you said they're really mm-hmm. um, light years ahead of everyone. But for um, retrofitting buildings to meet the AODA standards, I, it's got to be a costly endeavor for a, for a property owner. Um, what's your response to, to that concern?
1: Well, um, it can be, but it doesn't have to be. Um, and I don't think any uh, advocate is looking, I'm certainly not, to even come close to bankrupting somebody. You're never going to make a perfect Solution to every location, but you can make most locations mostly accessible Uh, and it is a matter of consulting it is a matter of uh, Dialoguing with the disability community and uh, Saying what really needs to be done. I find it intriguing that um, some of the greatest improvements have been made uh, by persons with disabilities Uh, who themselves have become advocates and have made the improvements. So Luke Anderson with Stop Gap.
0: Yeah, I live in the Roncesvalles neighborhood and I see those uh, in front of most of the storefronts. Yes.
1: So why is it that it took a man in a wheelchair to not only come up with the idea for the solution, but then to build the solution and then... Fight literally fight City Hall, to allow for the implementation of the solution. Mm-hmm. It's and not that's
0: just like a it's just a wooden ramp right yep. that's customized to meet the, the certain height of that step to that get one into the step. store. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean that is it's a simple solution and a fairly affordable solution. Yes, but for buildings that are maybe old or heritage right. downtown that uh, may have tight spaces. Um, That's uh, a much bigger challenge. It's a bigger
1: Uh, challenge if you're going for the 100% solution. But I think in terms of with Luke and Stopgap, it's not a 100% solution, but it's a major part of the solution. Gets the person in the door. So why is it that it took him to come up with that? Why did government not see that uh, when it's just such a simple solution? Um, Mayan Ziv is another lady a person who's come up with an elegant solution um, before going to anywhere in Toronto I have to or anywhere I have to phone in advance and virtually interrogate the owner operators of the place to determine the degree of accessibility as to whether or not I'm going to encounter barriers that I just can't overcome and um, Mayan created an app for your phone Which just basically allows you to wherever you go uh, to place a red pin or a green pin on the facility that you've just visited. Yes, access now. And uh, so, a couple of weeks ago, our eldest son was his uh, company had a uh, was in a hockey tournament uh, in Oakville on uh, with the Tech for Good. Um, program, and he's in the computer business, and so their their company had a team that they sponsored in this tournament. And uh, the facility it was being held at was the uh, 16 mile Sports Center. Uh, and I'm not, you know, being from Scarborough, I wasn't really familiar with this facility. It looked brand new, but you know, the student learning center for Ryerson is brand new effectively. And I so I I phoned to see, okay, do you is your is your place accessible by wheelchair? Can you get straight in or am I going to encounter stairs or is it going to be like that? Yes, we're accessible. We just have one step um, situation now for fortunately. uh, Well, although I did not hear back from them, I took a chance, went out, and found that it was completely accessible, and they had a lot of very good innovations and I could tell by the different touches that I saw that this is clearly something where they consulted with the local accessibility group because there were just uh, dozens and dozens of touches of innovations that just let me know that, oh, okay, somebody with this kind of a condition told them to do this, this, and this and um, so that's what's required. But why is it that it, it's taken you know an advocate like my Anne and an advocate like Luke to come up with these actual solutions? And I think the answer is that government tends to work on policy right. instead of working on solving problems. And that, that, uh, can, that's where the huge proportion of the recommendations that I made are not policy-oriented, they're problem-solving initiatives.
0: Well, that actually leads into my next question. Um, I think it was last week when, I think it's Toronto for All campaign, mm-hmm. um, they modified a downtown transit shelter at King and Bathurst yeah. um, to be enclosed on all sides as a way to demonstrate the physical barriers uh, faced regularly by people with disabilities. What's the end goal by raising awareness? Is it is it, um, is it really to get, I guess, the the general population more in tune with with the problems um, that uh, mm-hmm. people with disabilities face, or is it to try to get government to to be? I think a- it's
1: both. Okay. I think the I think the public, by and large, are much farther ahead than most of most governments are. Okay, I think most people are generally aware of the prevalence of disability. You only need to go to any shopping plaza, sure. any mall, and the greater Toronto area or anywhere yeah. and see the huge percentage of persons with disabilities who are shoppers and ask a simple question. Why are they there? They're there because the malls are generally accessible. Yeah. And they're not elsewhere because elsewhere, that is the rest of society is generally not accessible. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as uh as fun and as dynamic as downtown Toronto can be, and my wife and I lived in downtown Toronto for several years before raising a family, um, I have absolutely no desire to, uh, other than for specific appointments, ever go back down again because of the barriers I know that I'm going to encounter. Right. So if somebody calls up and says a group of us are getting together and we want to go to the such and such restaurant. Can you join us?
0: Yeah.
1: No matter how much I want to go, I have to always say, I don't know. I'm going to have to check on the degree of accessibility. Sure. Yeah. And that's where the soul crushing dispiriting aspect gets in because it would be nice just, you know, once to be able to say, um, Sure. Yeah. yeah. And not have to not think have, about it. Not have to think about it. Yeah. So
0: then getting back to the outlook, I just want to yeah. end off sure. um, the outlook for the AODA. You, you've tabled it back in January. What's mm-hmm. been the response? What was the response like from government uh, to your third review?
1: Well, I've had two meetings with the minister responsible for the act, Raymond Cho. And he's been quite supportive of the ideas. Of course, he has to uh, get it before a cabinet and convince the cabinet and the premier that you know some or all of the recommendations need to be implemented, uh, and that's just the process of governance. So
0: we shall see. Are you hopeful or are you skeptical?
1: I'm. I'm always hopeful. Um, I. Th- I think it's the right thing to do. I think it would be good for the economy. I think it would be very good for the economy. Mm -hmm. Um, If 400,000 people uh, were no longer dependent on tax dollars to keep body and soul together but became taxpayers, uh, even at minimum wage or barely Mm -hmm. above that... certainly a boost to the economy. Oh, it'd be just a massive infusion. It really would.
0: Are there any other jurisdictions either in Canada or elsewhere that... You look up to as, as sort of the lead that we, where you would like us to be.
1: Well, the Americans with Disabilities Act is administered by the Department of Justice, so uh, you don't fool around with the DOJ. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't know whether we would ever get to that point, but uh, if you're going to be serious about enforcing legislation. It has to have some bite to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's you know been at the heart of the issue in terms of the first is- discussions about pollution and um, treating the environment in a better way. Uh, I'm now going back 35 and 40 years ago, and it came down to questions of enforcement. Well, how are you going to enforce it? And the, the answer was, well, you will enforce it. That's how you enforce it. You, you do it, you don't just talk about it. Mm. And uh, we're having the same kind of conversation with climate change. Yeah. Do we have the will to do it? I don't know. We'll see. Time will tell. Yeah, time will tell.
0: Well, this has been really interesting, um, and it's been a real honor to have you on the podcast. Well,
1: thank you. Um,
0: Thanks for all your
1: work on the third review
0: and uh, for raising awareness about persons with disabilities and for, um, for serving as our 28th lieutenant
1: governor. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Talk to you again. Thank you.